if you had a school, for example, and even half of the kids that had gone through this school were coming out with cancer, let's say, that school would be shut down. Immediately. Immediately, no question. You know, yeah, like this is bad, this is hurting people. Based on the interviews that we've done, way more than half of these kids are coming out of this place with PTSD. But the school's not being shut down. Why do you think we we don't take the psychological illnesses more seriously? Because they can't be seen? campus of Freedom Village USA, an international ministry dedicated to reaching the teenagers of the United States and Canada. Welcome to Victory Today. My name is Margaret, and this is We Warn Them Freedom Village, an investigative mini-series unpacking what happened at Freedom Village USA through interviews with the people who experienced it themselves. We will mention different forms of abuse and violence throughout this series, so please take care of yourself as you feel necessary. Like we mentioned in episode three, there is still no national database that keeps track of all the troubled teen programs. Even the few statistics that do exist are incomplete because they don't include the religious organizations. Without any record of which programs exist, what they're doing, and what happens to kids after they leave, how can we measure the success of these so-called rehabilitation programs? What does the long-term aftermath of a troubled teen program look like? Without statistical data, the only way we can answer this question is by listening to the experiences of people who have gone through it and are willing to share their stories. In this episode, we'll be hearing some new voices, and we'll also be revisiting some people that we've already met. This time, we'll be focusing on where they are now in life and hearing in their own words how Freedom Village has affected them. One of the only new people I want to introduce is Caitlin. Her parents sent her to a psych ward in Canada where she grew up, and then across the border to Freedom Village. Although she only stayed for five months, she was then trafficked into more TTI programs, one being Teen Challenge, a notorious troubled teen institute with multiple locations in 16 states across the U.S. About a year ago, I got to have a phone call with her. I used to always have this saying, If you want to get out of the game alive, you have to play the game better than the person who made it. And that really affected me a lot because in some ways I didn't really know how to even be in society. I had learned how to play this game and I think everybody's playing it and I'm not understanding why other people aren't understanding the rules. Because there in Freedom Village, you could take nothing at face value. Like that's the kind of stuff that would happen. You really couldn't trust anybody. You had to read into everything. You had to be able to lie really well and know when somebody is saying something, but they really need something totally different. And sometimes you have to guess and you have to call their 
bluff. So when I came into the real world, I would be so paranoid about people and what do you really mean by that? And they're like, what do you mean? What do I mean? I mean what I'm saying. Like, and I would just read way too much into things that weren't even there. But it was almost like I felt like I had to. So what made Freedom Village traumatic? I feel like this whole series has kind of been an ode to that question, but it's still worth breaking it down. We'll be hearing more insight from Maggie, who's a licensed clinical therapist. What is PTSD? Could you give a definition of sorts? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think first I want to kind of give not a definition of trauma, but I just want to say something about like what trauma is, because I feel like that's a word that's sort of thrown around a lot. But, you know, like it might be good to just say so like defining trauma is hard and you can't really put it in a sentence, I don't think. But some people would describe it as it's like too much, too fast, too soon. So basically, it's an experience that is too overwhelming for you to like effectively process and handle it in that moment. But this can look like a lot of different things. So some consistent elements of trauma are lack of safety, right? A lack of a sense of security, a lack of control, any kind of situation where your physical or emotional needs aren't being met. So... PTSD is what we call the aftermath of trauma for a lot of people. Not everyone who has trauma develops PTSD. But the idea is that like in the moment when something traumatic is happening to you, you react to it, right? Which could also be considered adapting to it. Like the trauma is happening, it's like survival mode. You have to do what you have to do to survive. But then the trauma is over and those things that you had to do to survive in that moment don't really stop. Like your mind or your body kind of gets stuck in those reactions and they continue. And that's what we mean when we talk about PTSD. I think it's important to note that most of the people I've spoken to attended Freedom Village between the ages of 12 and 16. Even the ones that stayed into adulthood had first arrived in their early teens. And when people are that age, their sense of self is still malleable, right? It's like it's forming, it's evolving, it's fluid. And it's also vulnerable to influence, you know, maybe more so than when someone is an adult. When you're a teenager, you're still forming your idea of who you are. And that idea is going to be more informed by how others are treating you. The messages that you're receiving from the world about what you deserve, how you deserve to be treated, Things got really bad after I left. Um, I got a lot worse. Uh, And then I think having been to the Teen Challenge after that just poured even that much more gasoline onto the situation. Um, Because when I was in Teen Challenge, I started developing a worse eating disorder which was already happening in Freedom Village. Um, And somehow I managed to hide a lot of that. And then my eating disorder got pretty severe when I was out. Um, I had to go into treatment. I was underweight. Um, I started abusing drugs, which is almost ironic because I wasn't using drugs before and then 
And it was even harder because nobody knew what happened. Mm. You know, all of these family members were like, oh, it's so good you went there and all of this stuff. And I was kind of holding that all in. And meanwhile, like I said, I, I couldn't live. I just couldn't. I felt so guilty for being out of those places, knowing you know, oh, it's 12 o'clock. There's a bunch of kids in New York right now sitting at the no-level table, you know, worrying about walking the log tonight. You know, I I felt guilty even just opening the fridge, being able to get a glass of orange juice. Caitlin told me that she has since been diagnosed with CPTSD. The C stands for complex and is used to describe people that have endured recurring traumatic events rather than just one. She described to me some of her symptoms, including disassociating and forgetting hours in a day, once she arrived at a grocery store and had no idea how she got there. Maggie mentioned that PTSD physically changes the body. Something else that I want to say about the emotional needs part of this is that when speaking about you know physical needs, that's pretty easy to understand why that's important. I think that sometimes people think our emotional needs are kind of secondary or not essential, you know? That this was like, oh, okay, kind of tough, right? You had no one to talk to, blah, 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 that's life, right? Like, I would argue that our emotional needs, in a sense, are actually biologically based. Like, these needs are hardwired into our bodies and not having them met affects our digestive system, it affects our heart, it affects our blood flow, it affects our immune system, it affects the way that our brains grow, it literally affects our neurons, you know, like this is, this is really important. And we are all born needing to have the experience of human connection needing to feel cared for, like that is hardwired into the human species. So being a person, any person, but especially a young person and being alone and being scared and not being able to have that human connection for weeks, months, that's really damaging. That's really serious. In episode two, Maggie and I went back upstate with Boy Wonder to visit his friends from the village, Bryden and Weston. Despite them all being out of the village for over a year at this point, they all mentioned different ways it has continued to affect them. Bryden, who was at the village for a year and one month, leaving in 2019, tells me about his dreams. I, I, I have nightmares every single night. I don't sleep. I, I just don't dream, I guess. If I dream, it's a nightmare. But if I don't dream, it's... Or if I... Like, it's never a good dream. I can never dream of something good. Never. Are your dreams at... Are you at the village in your dreams? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. Other times, it's just me and the homies. And then they're gone. Boy Wonder, who was at the village for a year and seven months, tells me about his experience. There are moments where, like... Like, like when I slept last night at your house... The reason why you, I woke up in, in that undercover that blanket is because for a second, like, I woke up the first time and I woke up in my dorm and I, I like, 
it freaked me the fuck out. And I just grabbed the blanket and put it under my head and tried and swim back to sleep. Like, I still have the trauma. Like, and it's trauma that, like, I wouldn't expect. Like, sometimes if I'm, if I'm drunk enough, sometimes if I'm walking in someone's house or hallway, if I blink, sometimes I'll blink and I'll see B-Hall. I'll blink again and it, it, it'll be the room. However, the most surprising story came from Weston. He now lives back in Syracuse with his parents and works at Home Depot. When I'm working, like, because I work outside in the lot, I'll walk into, like, a cart corral, like, I'll push the carts out. As I turn the carts, I look up and it's in, like, the horse barn. I look back down and I'm doing the fucking water buckets. And I look back up and I'm back at Home Depot. It's like flash seconds, like it's not a noticeable amount of time. Just shit like that, like just throws my balance off sometimes. Like if that happens, like when that happened, I fucking like fell in the parking lot to the ground because I lost balance and like my centering because I just didn't know what like where I was. The flashbacks Weston described reminded me of what I have heard war veterans experience. Bryden tells me more, and I start to understand the parallels. Remember like this, when I left, before I was a very emotional person, I would cry over anything. When I left, I didn't even cry when my grandma died. I didn't cry when my, I got a call yesterday at lunch. My childhood dogs were put down yesterday. I didn't cry, I didn't even care. So you still feel, but like you don't really feel emotional pain? No. Anymore? No. Ever? No. Do you feel joy? No, not really. Uh, this is one of the perks that Freedom Lewis takes from you. Yeah. The yeah, emotions. Uh, a few weeks ago, or when I first got here, uh, Tanner, we were in there playing video games and I got really high. Um, I started having memories of the village and I about broke down because I missed my buddies. You know, I missed the pain that we went through together. And it was like I was living it alone. Mm-hmm. And I broke down and I opened up to him a little bit and I was in tears. Mm-hmm. I didn't lie, I was. And, but y- and you were saying you started, you said you got really high and then you started having flashbacks. What were those flashbacks like? Uh, me beating a little kid. I say a little kid, a kid. I went into his room one night and beat the fuck out of him. Big time. Mm-hmm. And that was what you flashed back to? When yeah, you because it's right? a little-ass kid. He's fucking 13. I'm 16. This motherfucker's over here crying. I got this kid crying. Mm-hmm. And he's over here screaming, and everybody can hear it, but nobody does a fucking thing. Because we are. Were, were staff there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Staff was there. I nobody was gave a shit. I would have loved for somebody to come in and fucking deck the shit out of me, but nobody did. That's what made it hard. Do you feel like you guys were almost like pushing boundaries because you wanted someone to intervene? No. Not like, really, I mean, no. Or I mean, I guess maybe like, like you, sense of freedom. part of you that was curious about like how far can we take things before oh, yeah. someone will care. Yeah. The only things they cared about was the rules. As long as you followed the rules, give a fuck what you did. Mm, the rules on the book. <clears throat> rules on the book. So what do we take away from this story? Obviously, it's wrong that Bryden was beating up kids, but the adults who were in charge of them were allowing and perhaps encouraging this behavior. 
their non-action sends the message that violence is okay. This is a dangerous message to be sending. How will this impact their view of the world and the people in it? The bigger issues are also about like the way it affects your ability to connect with other people. So a big part of PTSD is having trust issues, you know, like not being able to trust other people, not being able to open up to other people in meaningful ways, not being able to form deep emotional connections, not being able to regulate your own emotions. Um, a lot of people with, with trauma kind of feel like there's something wrong with them or like they're broken or what they have inside of themselves is so ugly that they don't want anyone else to see it. They don't want anyone else to see them. And I mean, obviously, you know, this affects all aspects of your life. It can affect your friendships. It affects romantic relationships. It affects your relationship with sex, your ability to be intimate with people. Phil, who we first met in episode three, had a lot to say about this. He was one of the youngest placements at Freedom Village, arriving in 1989 at 12 years old. He stayed for a year and a half. He talks about constantly being neglected at Freedom Village, having multiple adopted teen sponsors, but never receiving any of the money or resources. I have a hard time sleeping still. Um, that's followed me a long time. That's followed me since then. Um, I'm not a very social person. I'm very skeptical of everybody. Mm-hmm. And that that comes from that time, definitely. And it's I, I'm always on guard. I'm always, and I don't have a lot of friends. I just don't, I, I, I don't get along a lot. It's not that I don't, I don't wanna say I don't get along. I get along with everybody. I just, there's trust issues. I don't, it's hard to trust anybody. You know, and the people that I was supposed to be able to trust the most just kinda abandoned me. <laughs> You know, and left me to to rot in some prison-like place for so many years. And even getting back out, I still felt like I was. I felt like I was in that prison for a long time. I I think a lot of my decision making, and and you know, me questioning what to do and how to do things, all comes from that. Because I I really overanalyze everything because I felt then and like I feel now is that if I don't overanalyze and I don't look at the whole entire situation and make sure I make the exact right choice that it's just going to fall apart and I'll be back in square one and have to start again. But that led to something that I I had to deal with later on and, and with with therapy is I got so used to making things up I started just making things up all the time. Mm, yeah. And it got to a point where I started Life not start not knowing what was real you know i went through a lot of therapy to fix that because <laughs> i'll tell you 10 years ago 15 years ago if you'd have called me or 10 years ago i would have told you no i can't i can't talk about it because i wouldn't be able to tell you if i was going to tell you the truth or not wow you'd come so kind of disillusioned to what you had physically experienced mm-hmm. wow. i just made it all up it's easier you make 
I found when, when you just make things up and follow the, what they wanted, that's what they wanted you to do anyway. I got left alone. <laughs> and the lies were coming down from the very top, like this whole place was built on one massive lie. Yeah, like the level system like trained you to look at life in this like very specific type of way, and it's hard to let go of that. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, I've spent a lot of years in therapy, and you know, we're still. I'm able to talk about it now. That's a huge step for me because I've never talked about it. Like, she knows a little bit. I think she's probably the only other human being on the planet. I, mean, I don't know. It just felt like it was the time. Like, I know there's other kids out there that are suffering and hurting, and it sucks. And they need help. And people like him and, and their predatory ways has to come to an end. Someone has to end, you know, end this cycle. Fletcher Brothers was using Christianity as a tool of manipulation to control people and bend them to his will. He invoked concepts like purity and obedience, teaching people that their worth and spiritual well-being were conditional. This affects not only how a person views themselves, but also how they treat other people. Mary, who we met in the last episode and grew up in Freedom Village, leaving at 24 years old, describes what it was like to try to unlearn these concepts. It was just like a slippery slope of God's favor that like you could lose it if you cross any of these lines. And I can see now that like how I relate to people and how like only in the last couple of years I'm starting to be able to actually love people properly, I think. Like love or even like you guys or people that I just meet, like my initial go-to is like judgment and criticism and like Let's figure out what's wrong with this person so I can help them and fix them. But, like, you don't have any compassion for people when you're, like, like, then you probably do have tons of prejudice because you've never made friends with anybody. Like, you don't get to know a person. You're just fixing them or, like, categorizing them. And that's how I was. Like, that is who I was for all that time. And this judgment isn't only directed towards other people. Often, the most harsh judgment is turned inwards. One of the people I interviewed in the first episode, the woman who arrived at Freedom Village in 1984, describes what it was like developing her own sexual identity after leaving Freedom Village. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame. How so? I think through all the scripture we learned, I mean, it took years after I left, especially when it came to sex. It does a number on your mind. Does a number on your mind. Like, you know, the, the verse of, um, even if you thought it, it's the same as you did it. And it's like, years after leaving, I had to realize, I had to learn that, hey, this desire that we have for sex is God-given. It's natural. It's normal. And to shame it and suppress it and it can be it can turn into something freaky and ugly if it's not embraced as something natural. If it, we were taught that if we were taught that it's God-given and it's natural. And to deal with it differently, 
All right, when I, like I told my boyfriend, right? When I graduated, we continued to date and whatever. He wanted, we never had sex because I was so scared that God was gonna punish me. We never had sex because I was so scared that God was gonna punish me, you know? I would pray to God, God, like, take this desire away from me until I get married. The sexual relations that I did have, right after, it would, it would, I would have sex with these different guys because it was a build-up, you know? You'd be so horny and you get, you have sex and then after the deed is done, it's like, oh my God, what did I do? You feel disgusted, you feel guilty, you feel shame. It's like, what good is sex if it's full of shame and regret all the time? And that was years. That was my experience with sex for years. I also talked to Jesse from episode three about this. He was the one who came to Freedom Village in 1991 and was groomed and then raped by one of the adopted teen sponsors who also served as partial staff. He describes what it was like living with the conditioning that he had received from Fletcher Brothers. But he really made me fearful of what I, what and who I was and letting that manifest and, you know, becoming who I was. And, you know, for years, um... I didn't lose my virginity until I was like 21. Mm-hmm. I didn't consensually do anything with anyone until I was about 21. And the whole time, this is terrible. Talk about a cock block. I just kept seeing his face and hearing his voice in my head. <laughs> oh my God. And yeah, it was the worst. It took a long time to get over that. I've been with my partner since 2006 we've been together about 15 years it took me until my 30s to really get out of that i lived this very secret life go to work come home don't interact it really made me antisocial for most of my life it made me fearful of other people the last person i want to introduce today is a woman named monica She attended Freedom Village for a total of two years, beginning in 2001. Monica suffered from depression growing up and was diagnosed with ADHD. She describes getting in trouble for typical things like smoking and drinking. Her parents, not knowing how to handle her mental health and behavior, ended up putting her in a psych ward until they heard about Freedom Village. She told me that she had been openly gay the whole time she was there. One of the consequences was that she never made it past sea level. Me and this girl had some feelings for each other, and I had told because there was accusations um, against us, and I got scared. And I had told the dean. They told me that I needed to change, and uh, I needed love from a woman. So to change me, uh, they wanted to do like uh, like cuddling to help me through it. Who, who would cuddle with you? Uh, the dean of the um, dorm. Yeah, they recommended that I had an adult woman hold me and cuddle me to give me the love that I was missing that made me attracted to women. I did it once, and I know that it was the most uncomfortable feeling in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did... and. Did the dean believe, I mean, the dean must have believed this too, that this was helpful, like? Yeah. 
I believe her intentions were were right. Like her, she felt like her intentions were right because we're all being brainwashed by this man. And was this cuddling a common practice? Of I I have absolutely no clue if I was the only one. I know there was a couple other women in the program that were that were you know gay, but they never said anything. I know that a lot of them had told me, quit being so honest with them. Mm. And they thought that I was crazy for saying that I was gay and, and wasn't going to say anything different. Because my thing was, I was so afraid. I got this man I'm afraid of and his people, but also I'm afraid that he's taught me that God is, is judging me and I'm going to hell for this. But I was afraid to say God changed me because I was afraid that I was spitting in God's face and I was going to get even more punished for it. If that makes any sense. If you were dishonest, then you would, then you would, then God would punish you even more. So how should I, why would I say that God changed me? If he didn't, he made me who I am and I'm accepting it. I can't say to him, no, you changed me. I'm not this person. Right. Wow. So a lot of um, moral conflicts to be happening at 16. Yeah. <laughs> so um, your girl your girl at the time got kicked out of the program because you guys got caught. Yes. So why didn't you get kicked out of the program? Um, at that time, I tried running away. There's train tracks down behind Freedom Village. Yes. I was trying to run away, and there was... Um, security guys which were the other guys on the higher level they had um gotten a hold of me and the dean at the time and i got shoved into a ditch and when i got shoved in the ditch i was punched i was beaten up in this ditch by the staff yes by the staff i had marks around my neck from where they were grabbing my throat and fletcher came downstairs in the dorm and saw that and I think he was so afraid of me leaving and saying something that he kept me there and was saying he was doing me a favor that he could be throwing me out and I would die out there. So he was saving my life. Oh, my At God. At time, I was, like, kind of, like, um, lost in that, like, oh, he is right. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to die. He did save me. Hmm. Not thinking, wait a minute. As an adult, I'm like, this is this is a child that got physically abused and you were scared, so you were trying to cover it up. Yeah. And especially if I went out there and said who I, like, you know, why I was beaten. She describes to me what it was like right after she left the village. I'm old enough, I don't have an education from even high school. No education don't know how to get a job. I don't know how to do a resume. I don't know how to fill out an application. I don't even know how to talk to people without using the word. And there's nothing wrong with God and stuff like that. But you, you're so used to scripture and being brainwashed with scripture and memorizing scripture, like having a conversation with somebody without quoting the Bible was odd. Like the world did not accept that. Like, okay, you can't, you know, you don't know how to interact with people. I was always the strange one. So going into the world and trying to, it, it was a huge anxiety. I didn't even know what to wear. I didn't know what clothes to wear, what was going to be appropriate for the world. 
Mm. Nobody cares. But in my mind, when I felt like I was sinning, I would punish myself. Okay, well, scrub the floors, make sure I made my bed perfect, and then questioning if that bed's perfect because I'm afraid to get in trouble. But nobody was behind me saying, Monica, that's wrong. You know what I mean? So you're like in this chaotic mind. <laughs> I got so scared, I called them up and begged them to take me back because I had no clue what I was doing. Similarly to Lauren from episode four, Monica ended up going back to Freedom Village because navigating the outside world had become too confusing for her. This is a perfect example of institutionalization. I don't walk around and, and, and flaunt uh, who I am because I was ashamed of it. I still have that problem. Um, I get very nervous when I tell people, you know, like obviously you can look at me and see that I'm, I'm a lesbian and that's fine, but I don't go around expressing that. I had very low self-esteem. I'm, I, I felt like I was ugly, disgusting. <laughs> did you feel like, did you have trouble getting into relationships afterwards? Oh, yes. I don't trust people as far as I could throw them. Um, I would self-sabotage a lot of relationships, not even um, on an intimate relationship, even on friendship. Um, mm. I'm a very, I'm still, to this day, a very loner. Thank, I, I'm very thankful for my significant other because she's very patient. <laughs> very patient. Um, because she understands. She really takes the time to read about it. And she watches a bunch of, like, uh, cult stuff on TV. So she understands the thought process that goes behind it. And part of institutionalizing someone is readjusting their sense of how they deserve to be treated. You're cutting down a person's self-esteem and self-worth. Over an extended period of time, this begins to strip them of their sense of humanity. Dehumanization is another really big part of this, and that's, that's not all there is to it. I mean, dehumanization in general is a form of trauma, right? Like, being made to feel that your humanity doesn't matter in this moment, that you are not deserving of being treated respectfully, of being treated with dignity. I mean, it was standard practice here that these kids were forced to talk about their, you know, their testimonies, like these dark, humiliating, painful, stories of things that had happened in their life, you know? Like, that's not something that comes lightly. That's a really intense process of opening yourself up and taking something out that's heavy and it's scary. It was always about him. It was never about us. You know, he would belittle kids. He'd just destroy you in front of him. All your peers, if you made them mad, just destroy you. Like, and I, I'm not just going, oh, you're 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 a moron for doing this or whatever. You know, because we all get that. Like, he would take the dark things that you told in 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 you know the private room. He would throw that at you in front of everybody, like a bomb. I think one just another thing about dehumanization is that these kids were aware, a lot of them, 
were aware that they were being used essentially as a free source of labor to maintain Fletcher Brothers' personal property. And that in itself, that, I mean, that is slavery. That is dehumanizing. That's trauma. The whole adopt a teen really burns me. Like, I mean, I, I want to say now, it's like, I feel like it was human trafficking. You're making a profit off me. You're selling me to strangers. Maybe I didn't go out and, you know, experience like in their homes and stuff like that, but you're still talking to people you don't know. Some emotion comes up, and I'm like, why the hell do I feel that way? Sorry for my language. And a mm -hmm. lot of it comes down to my significant other saying, wow, like, there's something not right because you're feeling things that you can't identify with today. Monica is 37 now, and this happened to her when she was a teenager. I tend to think that similar to a physical wound, the injury will naturally heal over time. But talking to survivors who have been away from Freedom Village for years or even decades has shown me that this isn't necessarily the case. Did you see a therapist? No. What? How? <laughs> no. And then my poor, like, my, my doctor, like, my... You're like primary right, primary. yeah, like I remember going to see him with all the kids in tow and he's like looking at the kids and then he's just like, are you okay? And I'm like, uh-huh. He's just like, you know, you can see, like, you can see somebody and I just, again, I was just conditioned to be like, no, no, it's fine. I'll just read my Bible more. Like, that's the only tools I thought I had is just keep reading the Bible, keep praying. And like, that's what's gonna help. And it didn't. And so yeah, I went through a lot of like literally crippling anxiety, like probably needed some medication there, like just having these weird phobias, like I couldn't be in the car driving with somebody else driving, like I was just completely convinced that we were going to get in an accident every second of every drive. And it's like, but I didn't tell anybody that because I, of course, I'm conditioned to just like not express anything and so like suffered through that got to the point where I was having dreams about like beating my kids and like beating them yeah like hurting my kids like just terrible and I finally I don't even it's just again like I forget so much of that period of time in spite of the long-lasting impacts of this type of abuse human beings are still driven by the impulse and will to heal themselves Monica describes her multiple attempts at different forms of therapy. Yeah, I was diagnosed with PTSD and I was receiving treatment um, a couple years ago through EMDR. And they actually had to stop it because I was physically getting sick from it. Mm. And um, trying to go through that process on memories being jumbled up with timing, like years and stuff like that has it's been a it's been a struggle because yeah. I sometimes I I can't remember a lot of things. Even now when I talk to other survivors and I'm like, Can, did this really happen? They're like, yeah, my, that really that that did happen, you know. And I you know save those text messages so I can put the pieces together because I was like, wait, you know, I know this happened, I know it happened, but it, it's that that you're so brainwashed to make yourself seem like you're the crazy one. There's something wrong with you. 
And it, it got worse when I left because uh, my drug abuse had gotten out of control. I've been sober for 10 years, but I became a worse drug addict, like got into drugs more when I left there. Just because you go out and like you don't know what to do. The circumstances at Freedom Village are so extreme and strange that a lot of kids leave feeling even more isolated and unable to relate to their peers. They don't know how to reach out to other people for support, or at least in a healthy way, and end up turning their feelings inwards. A lot of people don't even feel comfortable telling their parents the truth about what happened to them. Did your mom or dad ever understand like what this place was, or only after the fact, or even now? I would say stuff, and they would be like, oh, you know, they meant well, and all of this stuff. They didn't actually find out and they still don't even fully know what happened. But they didn't find out that it was like legit abusive until a year ago. A year ago. And I'm 30 years old. <laughs> mm. And it was, did you tell them finally? Yeah. Because mm. we got into a huge argument and they're like, we don't understand like why you're so this way. And I finally was just like, look, this is the stuff that legit happened. Because as much as I resented them for sending me there, I loved them enough that I didn't, nobody deserves that kind of guilt. No. <laughs> you know, and deep down, I didn't want them to know what happened because I didn't want them to be like, oh my gosh. Like, I really sent my kid. Yeah. Yeah. And like at times when I would be mad, it would be tempting to tell them out of revenge. I never did until it got to the point where it was like, it's either I tell them or this relationship is over because they're not understanding why when they say that this place was good, that I freak out. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't tell them like out of anger either because deep down I didn't want that. Caitlin wasn't the only person I talked to who had struggled with telling their parents. Lauren, who went back to the village almost three times, also describes this being a problem. But she also shares some insight into what has helped her. Music and just honestly I've just like learning and talking to other people. Like the more you talk, the more you learn and the more with other survivors you're like I'm starting, like, especially as a survivor, to, like, learn that I'm not alone, especially when it comes to, like, my family relationship. Honestly, um, leaving and just going to college and learning, like, just really helped. And then I feel like by the time I was, like, 22, I was just, like, I felt like I had, you know, accepted and, like, reflected it. And, and by the time I was, like, 24, I felt like you know, at peace with the experience. Like, I felt like I could easily, like, talk about it. Like, yeah, my family relationship wasn't eh, but I was at peace with, you know, what happened. Not that, not that it was okay, but just, you know, I had overcome whatever resentment or things that I had felt. I wouldn't say resentment, just 
just feel like lost time. Because with that, like, I was also, like, forced to grow up fast. I haven't lived with my family, like, since I was 14, really. Monica mentioned the same and recognized that telling and connecting with other people who have been through similar experiences was a step in the healing process. There are now multiple groups that people can go to online to connect. One group for people that have been to Freedom Village specifically is a private Facebook group called Freedom Village Truth. However, there are also other troubled teen industry advocacy groups on TikTok, Reddit, Twitter, pretty much any social media platform. I'll attach some resources below in the show notes. Since Mags is a clinical therapist, I asked her if she had any advice to share and she agrees about the importance of connection. She encourages folks to share with people that have earned your trust and at a pace that feels comfortable for you. She also suggests journaling or any act of creative expression, even if it's not to show anybody. The point is to have an outlet to connect to your feelings. Um, Another thing that could be an independent practice that's available to anyone is just taking care of your body. And this can be super, super simple things, sensory things, like making a hot cup of tea and just holding that in your hands and feeling it. Holding an ice cube in your hand, you know, that shocks your system. It brings you back into yourself. Exercise, yoga works for a lot of people. Any kind of like physical practice that can get you in touch with your body, that's gonna be good. Of course, there's also the option of therapy, seeking professional help, seeking, you know, mental health support. Where are places that people can go to to find a therapist? That's a good question. Um, And I wish that this process was easier. The first thing to do is look at where you live and your insurance. You know, look at your insurance plan, see who, what's covered on your insurance, right? And then from there, look at who's in your area. Any therapy provider in your area that is covered on your insurance is an option, right? Or maybe you have a lot of money and you can pay out of pocket and then forget the insurance part. But also, it's important to say too, like even if you don't have any health insurance, there are still places that will give you therapy. Almost everywhere you can find something, right? And I know, I mean, I feel like I've talked to survivors who have said that seeking therapy was intimidating to them because they are coming from a really unique experience here. Something I would want to say to anyone looking for therapy is that before going in, you are allowed to ask your therapist, like, do you know what the troubled teen industry is? Have you worked with people who have been through something similar to me in the past? Have you worked with people experiencing PTSD? Do you feel that you are professionally capable of working with me? These are questions that I think people don't realize they're allowed to ask, but you are. And you deserve to have, you know, treatment that's right for you. Like, you deserve to be able to ask these questions. So I would encourage everyone, you know, advocate for yourself. If you're worried someone isn't going to relate to your experience, just ask them, you know? And it's possible that maybe a lot of therapists haven't heard of this before, but that doesn't mean that 
they may not be open to learning. I mean, and therapy can be so scary, especially to people that have been through institutional abuse, right? Because the mental health field, in a way, is kind of its own institution. So for someone who's been institutionally abused, going back into an institution to seek care can be scary, understandably, and rightfully so. Which is why I want to say, you know, like, you have the right to go into this critically. You have the right to ask. I hope people listening do feel empowered to ask and advocate for themselves when seeking treatment. We would if we had a broken leg, right? I wanted to dedicate a whole episode to this conversation because I don't think it's talked about enough, despite so many people struggling. Something that is almost maybe like the darkest or like one of the deepest parts of this is that this can affect your children. So trauma and PTSD can be passed from one generation to the next. If you have trauma, if you have PTSD, and it's causing you to behave in certain ways, to have certain emotional reactions to things, like your kids grow up with that. It affects your ability to relate to your kids. It affects the type of connection you form with them. And it, get, it gets passed down, you know, like, Kids absorb that, they feel it, and they're impacted by it. It affects how they grow up seeing the world around them. It affects how they grow up expecting, what do they expect from others? How do they expect the world to treat them? You have all of these, these kids, these teenagers going through this program, being traumatized, potentially leaving with PTSD, that will stay with them for decades, maybe for the rest of their life. And that's not just affecting them. It's not just affecting the hundreds of kids that have gone through Freedom Village. It's affecting the maybe thousands of people who are their family members, their community members, their partners, mm. their lovers, their children. Like this has really wide ripple effects. I asked Jesse if there's anything else he would like to share. I don't know, this sounds so cliche and silly, but the biggest thing is not to give up hope, not to give in to desperation, you know, to hang in there, things do get better. It did. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with yourself, not to adjust and conform to what other people want of you, you know? You have to be true to yourself. And until I was true to myself, I was not happy. In this episode, we've seen people embark on their own individual journeys of healing. But what about collective healing, accountability, and justice? Teen treatment facilities are notorious for avoiding legal trouble. Oftentimes, when a program is forced to shut down, they end up reopening in a new state under a different name. In 2019, Freedom Village was forced to sell their property when they ran out of money. But Fletcher Brothers and his son Jeremy quickly devised a plan to reopen at a new facility in South Carolina. To this day, not a single person has been arrested for crimes committed at Freedom Village. 
So what happened? And where are they now? On the final episode of We Warn Them Freedom Village. Former residents say what they experienced at Freedom Village in the 1990s and 2000s was far from therapy and they left worse off than when they arrived. They call the organization a cult. We have people on the ground that actually visited the property and they found that it was the same administration from Freedom Village. When you think about South Carolina, you think, oh, you know, they're not as progressive or whatever. But what I seen that day really changed, like I said, everything that I thought was possible. This podcast was created by myself, Margaret Mayer, with the help of Stefan Sepko and Maggie Galen. All original music in this episode by Gucci Silica, Jillian Fox Orwell, Elson, K Porcelain, and Eleven. Check out the links below to follow them. If you want to learn more about the troubled teen industry, please go to wewarnthem.org or follow We Warn Them on any social media channel. Resources for survivor support pages will be attached below in the show notes.